legalization at the federal level will have a dramatic and immediate impact on the industry, right? It, it's likely to get rid of 280E, which means there's going to be a lot more money left at these companies. And as we see, these companies are going to turn around and deploy it right back into the companies to expand the markets that they operate in, to hire more people, to look at M&A, things of that nature. Legalization will also make things cheaper for the industry. You know, we've all heard about the cannabis premium, which means that if I hire consultants, if I hire service providers, if I hire whatever, I'm typically paying a higher fee because I'm in the cannabis industry. I just can't go and get a payroll provider, for example. Normally, I'm paying a pretty significant premium to maintain my payroll provider. Or if I have a bank account and it's an MRB bank account, as they say, I'm probably paying higher fees because the bank has a lot extra compliance that it has to manage and thus higher costs for operating MRB accounts. So once all of that is gone, the company is going to have a lot more money to spend on growth, a lot more money to spend on expanding operations, a lot more money to spend on hiring additional people. And it's going to make the industry a little faster, I believe. Hi, I'm Danny. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to the Spend Culture Stories podcast, where we explore the connection between company spending and culture. Join us as we dive deep into understanding the people, processes, and tools that make up spend as a whole, or what we call spend culture. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Spend Culture Stories. Seems like recently we had a pretty good lineup of great cannabis guests for you. But today we really have a treat for you. We have two special guests here today. First, we have Sebas Carrillo, the CEO and co-founder of Anon Consulting, a premium accounting and consulting firm widely recognized for its expertise in taking cannabis companies public. The second is my co-host today, Aoife Kelly, our partnerships manager at Procurify, who works with consulting firms and finance leaders to help consult on the leading edge technology for cannabis and beyond. Welcome. Hello, hello. Nice to be with you. Welcome, Sabas, and thanks so much for joining us. It's great to have you here on the podcast. So let's start things off. It would be great if you could tell us a bit about yourself and your career to date. Sure. So my career history really has been in startups that eventually went public. My first job right out of college was at a startup payments company that, you know, I came in ground floor, didn't know anything and came in, got a job in accounting worked my way up. And as part of that job, I got some options. You know, about a year after I started working there, the company went public. It was a small micro cap company. But in either case, my options became shares and I sold my shares and I made a little bit of money there, which really piqued my interest in the whole going public industry. And after I moved on from that company, I kind of thought to myself, hmm, this is, this is pretty interesting. Like, this is how people make money. And I really started to look for uh, career opportunities that were a startup or just recently out of startup stage, but had a plan to go public in the near future. And I kind of did that for a few times, learning along the way, getting promoted along the way, and really learning the go public process, both here in the U.S. and in Canada. And, you know, fast forward several years to the point where I was getting really good at it. And I just thought, hey, I could probably make a career out of this. And I decided to start at Nant. At Nant, 
I was working as at NAND for about a year, year and a half until I formally started the company as I started hiring more people. And I kind of figured, hey, I can't just pay people as consultants for very long. I got to just create this formal company, which is when I decided to form at NAND. And it's kind of been this ever since for the past 10 years. I joined the cannabis industry kind of as a fluke. It was uh, late 2009, and a friend of mine who was an auditor called me and said, hey, there's this little startup company in software that needs pre-audits and go public help. Are you interested? And I just did a little bit of research, and it was really exciting. The, the, the name of the company was Weed Maps, and I just thought it was really exciting and really interesting and obviously really risky at that time. And I asked my friend, like, hey, why are they coming to us, a small accounting firm? And he said, well, nobody will touch them. None of the other accounting firms that they had interviewed or had gone to ask if they would be willing to help, they all denied. They all said cannabis is far too risky and they just wouldn't want to touch it. So for that reason, I was like, hell yeah, we'll go help this company. And, you know, in the end, Weed Maps ended up going public, but they were only public for a short time because just the federal government wasn't ready to have a cannabis-related company be listed on the OTC. So they kind of cracked down on them. And in the end, Weed Maps was spun out of the PubCo at that time. Ever since then, our cannabis practice has been growing to now the vast majority of our clients are in the cannabis industry. Wow, it's really interesting. So such a um, variety of backgrounds and going through the, the entrepreneurial businesses and then going out and setting up by yourself and um, obviously very entrepreneurial as well and a, a great time to get into that cannabis space. And um, so touching on that with Atlant being in, in business for quite a few years now, how have you seen the industry change and um, the cannabis industry over that time? Oh, wow. People say that there's a multiple on time in the cannabis industry. And kind of what that means is that the pace that the industry moves is very fast. It's like a permanent entrepreneurial pace. So for me, the past nine, 10 years have felt like the last 30 years in terms of industry time. And I mean, we've seen major changes in the regulatory environment, banking, the way cities are approaching the cannabis industry, the way police and law enforcement are, are approaching cannabis, airports, TV, advertising, entrepreneurship uh, as a whole. All of this I've seen kind of go through a major evolution as the, as the legalized marijuana industry has, has uh, formed here, especially in California. But, you know, incidentally, we have to always keep in mind that the industry has been here, right? The industry has been here for a long, long time, 60 plus years. It's just been the so-called black market, the underground market. But it's been a robust industry in California. It's just that over the last 10 years, or really since 1996, since it was first legalized medicinally here in California, we've seen the development of the legalized cannabis industry and just really the last three, four years has it exploded. And we've kind of had a front seat to that, given that we've participated in taking the first cannabis company public, or, the, or rather the first cannabis-related company public. That was Weed Maps. We took the first dispensary public back in 14, 15. So lots has changed. And I'll tell you, Adnant itself has had to change along the way as well. We've had to adapt with our banking, with our corporate structure. We've had to move around to, to make sure that we can have proper office space. In the end, we had to buy our own office building to have a secure home that we weren't going to be constantly scared that we were going to get kicked out of if the landlords found out that clients of ours were in the cannabis space. So it's been a wild ride over the past 10 years seeing 
constant change, constant evolution. And it's, it's been, frankly, a lot of fun. Yeah, I can imagine having that um, that front row seat, as you mentioned, to um, this explosion of the cannabis industry and then taking um, that company public. It must have been really, really interesting and, and continues to be very interesting, I'd imagine, as well. And so with that and the, and the companies that you are um, consulting with, at what point have they decided to come to an organization like yours and say, hey, Sebas, we'd like to go public or we'd like the help of an external consultant? And um, at what point do they come to you? It depends on the size of the company. So, for example, MedMen came to us very early on when they were they had just made the decision they were going to go public and they had challenged themselves with a really aggressive timeline to do all of the cleanup work, all of the accounting work, do a roll up, do the major audits, do all of the documentation required to complete the listing statement and to complete a reverse takeover on the CSC. And that timeline was like four months. So they came very early on to us and, and, and said, we want to just take over your entire team and we want to make sure that uh, you're able to do this in the timeline that they had set forth for themselves. So we really jumped on that challenge and literally the whole firm was working on just that one file or that one company. And we also have other companies that are smaller in size, maybe haven't identified a Pupco shell, maybe haven't identified an entire team yet and our super early stage and, and really bring us in a, as a, an external consultant to consult on how to put that team together. Whereas larger companies like MedMen typically have already created that team internally before they hire us. The vast majority of our clients hire us at a very early stage to help with cleanup work, to help with acquisitions and, and the acquisitions cleanup work. And they'll do that at an earlier stage maybe about a year in advance of them going public. So in terms of when they do bring you in at that earlier stage or even later stage, what kind of processes or operational changes do you advise on in order to get themselves ready to go for that actual offering? So there's a whole slew of things, right? Most of the time, I recommend immediately to start hiring, you know, what I call the seven teams that are required to take a company public and to be public, right? So you got to have your internal and external accounting team. And you got to have people on the team that are technical in nature in terms of their skill set, that, that they can do purchase accounting, that they can do stuff like derivatives, options, warrants, that type of stuff, convertible debt. You got to have a technical accountant on your team, whether that's internal or external, it doesn't matter so much, but you got to have your accounting team. You got to have your audit team. You got to have your PR and IR teams. You got to have your legal counsel in the US. You got to have your legal counsel in Canada. And you also have to have a tax team as well, especially if you have principals of the company that live in California, because California doesn't follow the federal inversion rules. So tax planning is a big part of a company going public. And I often tell them as, as you got to develop some barometers very early on so that you can decide when you're quote unquote ready to go public. So for example, if you can close your books in five to seven days, and issue management financial statements, you know, financial statements for management purposes, then that's a good barometer, good indicator that you're close to being ready to go public. I also uh, start to advise them on getting polished, meaning go read some press releases, go read, go hear some of the investor calls that some of the other companies are, are doing and putting out so that you get an idea of the amount of work and what looks good and what doesn't look good because every company is a little bit different. And some people really care that 
they have a specific image that they want to present to the investors and capital markets. And other companies, you know, want to have a just, hey, we're heads down, we're growing, we're focused on M&A, and we're not going to do um, a lot of IR and PR. Whatever image the company is deciding to, to take on, I say start on that polish very early on. Make sure that if the founders of the company are entrepreneurs and have never had the experience of managing a publicly traded company, that they start on that work very early on and they, they start hiring a team to help them with that. So as an example, we have a client right now that's in the process of going public and doesn't have the experience of having managed a publicly traded company. So one of the things I'm saying is, hey, let's bring in an IR professional and start practicing with the kinds of questions you'll get on your first investor call, for example. And there's scripts that are written for you. There's a long list of questions that analysts might ask you. And that practice really presents uh, polished executives to the investors and uh, capital markets community you know, to really present the company well during that first uh, three to six months out of the gate of being public. Oh, we're curious now. So what kind of questions do those investors and analysts ask? All sorts of stuff. The, the, on the positive side, you know, you'll, you'll get analysts asking like, you guys are uh, aggressively doing a land grab, for example, and you're acquiring licenses, you're acquiring dispensaries, etc. What's your game plan for the next year? What are you seeing out there in terms of the market? The acquisitions of small, mid-sized companies increasing, slowing down. And then all the way on the other side, that's a bit negative. If there's any controversy you know, in the company, and as a tangent, I'll say the very first thing that a lot of executives of Pubco's find out is that you know, the media loves sensationalism, right? So if there's any drama at the company, it's going to blow up on the internet, in the news, because, hey, that's what people want to read, right? So get ready to be able to address those type of things. So if, if there's some controversy at the executive level, if there's a deal that fell apart, Analysts are going to ask you, they're going to ask you point blank, hey, what happened with this deal and why did it fall apart? Or, hey, you have this lawsuit, what's going on with that and what do you anticipate happening as an outcome? Those type of things you have to be prepared to answer in a concise and, and sort of polished way. So the range of questions really are all over the place. And then some analysts will also ask, especially the CFOs, what they think of the industry. They'll say, you know, is it becoming harder or, or easier to raise capital? What's the competitive landscape looking like for you? How are you addressing XYZ competitor company coming into your space? If you operate in this state, how has the regulatory environment change going to affect how you operate in that state? Those type of questions. Okay, so they really look thoroughly into all aspects that could potentially affect these businesses. And um, compliance factors and the regulatory environment is something that we hear a lot over and over again is a very key consideration for these organizations that people have to pay a lot of attention to. And um, another area that we hear is scrutinized pretty closely is the operations and finance processes within these companies. What sort of advice would you be giving to your clients on how to improve these finance and operational processes pre-IPO? Uh, that largely does depend, again, on the size of the company, how many subs they have. Are they operating in a single state, in a single region, or are they large MSOs? The first thing that I often recommend is to change out your accounting software. A lot of startups will use, for example, QuickBooks or Xero uh, that are great software and are cheap and inexpensive and fast to deploy which is why a lot of startups and small mid-sized companies use them. And you can really bend QuickBooks 
you know, to get you into the 50 million revenue range. And it worked well. But as a publicly traded company, uh, it's not going to work. It's not a strong software for consolidation of multiple entities. It's not strong software for multi-currency situations. And it certainly doesn't allow for tagging of receipts and agreements and whatnot, you know, supporting documentation that some of the larger software out there does like a financial force or in a vision or something like that. And so pretty early on, I start to advise that you got to change out from QuickBooks to something more robust. Uh, that's normally one of the first things we start attacking. We start making sure that there are processes in place so that transactions that are happening day to day, major transactions can be captured by the company because oftentimes companies are moving so fast that legal might be working on M&A and might close on an acquisition and the accounting team might not find out because there's no communication between the two teams. So we start making sure that there is clear channels of communication and SOPs in place that say, hey, if you're negotiating on a deal, your uh, somebody in your accounting team ought to, ought to know pretty early on and ought to be consulting or commenting on the deal structure because it's a very easy way to avoid major issues. Um, as an example, if you might go in and say, hey, we're going we're gonna to do this um, convertible note with an investor. And as part of that convertible note, we're going to also issue warrants. Well, convertible notes with, with warrants associated with them will have non-cash expense related to interest. Because under IFRS, you have to account for things a little bit differently. Companies often are shocked by the amount of non-cash expense that hits their P&L once they start accounting for things on their GAAP or, or, or an IFRS. So it's those kinds of little nuances that we start to say, hey, start capturing these things, start Im implementing SOPs around internal controls, around spending, around M&A and major transactions like that. Absolutely. And, and touching on that, are there any um, particular red flags or mistakes that you've seen frequently um, in terms of managing that cash flow or those internal controls that people would need to or cannabis organizations would need to look out for? The cannabis industry has always been highly regulated. And because it has its past in the underground market or the black market, there was a major cultural shift in the industry, right, over the last 10 years, I would say, in that Previously, documentation was your ticket to problems, right? So if you were operating in the black market, documentation was your ticket to, to prison, potentially. If you were operating in the legal market, documentation may still have been problematic for you. So there was a long cultural norm of just not having documentation. And you add to that the fact that the industry was majority all cash, and that was a recipe for just no documentation, no support for transactions. So really some of the red flags are, are just the things that need to be addressed early on, especially for smaller and mid-sized cannabis companies, is to really uh, embed in the DNA of the company documentation. And you know transactions need to be documented and supported. Major transactions like acquisitions or mergers, debt issuances, equity issuances, all that stuff needs to be documented. So... That cultural shift is, is really something that companies need to stop and address and make sure that it is thoroughly changed within their organization. And then the other thing is that kind of comes out of that old culture is dysfunction. And dysfunction, as an example, is the shredding of documentation or 
you know, still maintaining a hundred percent cash environment, which t- typically tends to result in bending of the rules here, bending of the rules there in order to just keep the business alive or keep, keep the business moving, not necessarily for nefarious reasons, but whenever you have a little window anywhere in your processes or your SOPs that allows for dysfunction. So for example, really flexible or unrestricted spending and that relies on trust, quote unquote, that's going to create a sort of dependency on that type of structure and habits. So later on, if you try to change it, you're going to meet resistance. And, and sometimes in really just bad cases, you'll have people that are employed by that company that begin to benefit from that dysfunction. And maybe they earn money on the side from that dysfunction. And then if that really gets made concrete within the organization, dismantling that type of dysfunction becomes really difficult without having a major disruption at that company. Other red flags that you, know, that you see in other companies and other industries aren't typical, again, because if you've been operating in the legal market for the last 10 years, because it's been highly regulated, you've been forced to have very clear SOPs, policies and procedures and to operate your business with a lot of visibility and documentation. Absolutely. And and now with cannabis moving more into the streamline and more into the, the kind of regular business environment out of the underground, this kind of importance on compliance and, and making sure that you're sticking to the rules and tracking everything correctly is becoming obviously very, very important. We hear that all the time, that compliance is a big thing and, and regulation in cannabis is, is really, really important and at the forefront of, of what they're doing. And you mentioned financial software earlier. Do you see other types of software and technology help with this um, these compliance issues and to help with this tracking of what's going on? Yes. So let's touch on a couple of things. So accounting software. QuickBooks is still the accounting software that, at least from our perspective and our client base, is the accounting software that the majority of cannabis companies use. Once you get into the larger MSO or the, or, or the larger publicly traded companies, they move into more robust software like Financial Force or Navision, things of that nature, and they move away from QuickBooks and Zero, And that's kind of the pattern. The other one that everybody talks about is the POS system or the, or the C-to-sale tracking software. From our perspective, there, re- there really isn't a clear winner out there. There's probably over 100 POS systems for the cannabis industry right now. There's a handful of uh, market leaders in terms of number of clients and the type of offerings that they have, but really there is no end-to-end POS system that is the market leader. For a while, we had a couple that were dominant just because they had a huge head start, but there's been some slip-ups around security, about data and crashing that kind of disrupted their lead. And we see younger companies coming in, biting at the heels of some of the more dominant uh, POS systems out there. But really, from our perspective, it's still open. And there's room for one or two dominant players that really nail the seat to sale tracking beyond what companies are doing now, which is focusing on certain parts of the seat to sale uh, life cycle. Other stuff that I think really needs to come into the space in terms of tools and technology is the kind of software you see in big ag. And what I mean by that is, let's say I am a vertically integrated company and I have a client that calls me and says, hey, I need to purchase 
a thousand grams of oil from you. I still don't have the capacity to log into my software, look how much materials I have, look to see how much lead time my manufacturing team needs, look to see what my vendors and suppliers and how much materials they have on the shelf in order to provide us to be able to plan out and respond to my client fairly quickly to say, hey, it's going to take us four weeks to deliver this oil, um, for, as an example. So that whole ERP system, we don't have much of that in the industry still. We need to have the kind of sophistication that we see in other ag industries, for example, sensors in the plants to notify when they need watering, the types of nutrients that uh, need to be fed to the plants, uh, how the plants are doing, the CO2 sensors in a grow room, all the way through to tracking the life cycle of a customer walking through a dispensary, for example, face recognition software that tracks the the customer in the dispensary to begin learning the habits of the customers to see what products they're picking up or looking at, the types of questions they're asking. There's still a lot of room for technology to come into the into the space and and you know get a pretty good footprint uh, in terms of sales. So that's interesting and good news to hear that there's still lots of potential for new technology to come to the market and that there's not a clear leader in that space in the cannabis industry. And from our point of view in Procurify, that's something that we're trying to solve on the purchasing side of the business to help these organizations to have a more streamlined workflow and visibility into their purchasing to help um, those business operations work more effectively. And just to journey back a little bit, um, just back to kind of the spend and the purchasing side of the businesses, what are the kind of trends that you have seen in terms of spend culture and purchasing in the cannabis industry? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that, again, I kind of keep coming back to it depends on the size of the company and where they are in their life cycle. I'll take a step back a little bit and I'll speak to how I see the industry itself right now and where it's at and sort of as an analogy to all industries. Right now, we're getting close to peak vertical integration in terms of the life cycle of the industry, where we see really large companies trying to do everything. And these are the large MSOs that are doing extraction, manufacturing, processing, they're growing, they're, they have retail all over the US. They're trying to do everything, right? They're, they're taking ownership in brands, they're launching their own brands, just peak vertical integration. And the type of analogy that I use is, is peak internet, where Craigslist, for example, was an example of peak internet, where I could go to Craigslist, you know, I could buy a car, I could rent my room, I could go on a date, I could look for travel in other places. And so that was sort of an example of peak internet. And now all of those kind of subsections that were in Craigslist have become major industries of themselves, right? We see Airbnb for renting a room, job listings has become a huge industry on its own, et cetera, et cetera. And I expect that to kind of be the next phase in the cannabis industry as we start to see companies come in and hyper-specialize in certain segments of the industry. So to really address kind of spend culture, you have to kind of look at where the company is in their life cycle and what part of the sort of industry cycle are they trying to compete in. If you have a large MSO, that is competing in many states and, and in different segments of the industry, you're going to see the spend culture migrate from, you know, the democratic style where people are agreeing on how they're going to spend and there's certain policies and maybe a centralized uh, spend and a lot of flexibility still to more of an administrative, heavy SOP, 
less flexibility around spending, more planning, more budgeting, that type of thing. And at the smaller, lightweight, entrepreneurial to even to mid-sized companies, I expect it to still be sort of unrestricted uh, spend culture, maybe a bit of agile, where they're just focused on growth, they're focused on land grab. And I see that moving very quickly as people are learning from some of the larger MSOs. They're saying, oh, we can pick and choose some of these tools that they're using around spend. And to kind of address a few specific things that will change and that will affect spend culture, legalization at the federal level will have a dramatic and immediate impact on the industry, right? It's likely to get rid of 280E, which means there's going to be a lot more money left at these companies. And as we see, these companies are going to turn around and deploy it right back into the companies to expand the, the markets that they operate in, to hire more people, to look at M&A, things of that nature. Legalization will also make things cheaper for the industry. You know, we've all heard about the cannabis premium, which means that if I hire consultants, if I hire service providers, if I hire whatever, I'm typically paying a higher fee because I'm in the cannabis industry. I just can't go and get a payroll provider, for example. Normally, I'm paying a a pretty significant premium to maintain my payroll provider. Or if I have a bank account and it's an MRB bank account, as they say, I'm probably paying higher fees because the bank has a lot extra compliance that it has to manage and thus higher uh, costs for operating MRB accounts. So once all of that is gone, the company's going to have a lot more money to spend on growth, a lot more money to spend on expanding operations, a lot more money to spend on hiring additional people. And it's going to make the industry a little faster, I believe, because it takes time and there's a certain tenuous nature to operate in a cannabis company. And because of that, it tends to slow down these companies. Uh, And we see that all the time where it's full steam ahead and then boom, they lose a bank account. And it's a major disruption event, boom, for that company. Major changes in the regulatory environment, boom, major disruption event. So it slows down the company. Once that's wiped away, we're going to see companies operating, like I said, like rocket ships, full steam ahead. And I expect that the pace or the multiple on time in cannabis to increase. That's probably going to be the biggest change to the spend culture of cannabis in the cannabis industry. And I expect that to happen within the next 24 months. Oh, amazing. I see you did your homework on spend culture and you did a great job there talking through the different types. And that's part of the reason why we named the podcast Spend Culture Stories. We think it's such an interesting topic and really interesting to see how those cultures change over time, depending on the company and the company size. And you referenced the different spend culture types there. If anybody in the audience is interested in looking into their spend culture or learning about the different types, you can go on to spendculture.com. So something that we see a lot in the tech sector is uh, something we talk about a lot is the burn rate. And when companies get funding, how they go through that, do they spend a lot to grow or do they, you know, mess around with the money and waste it? Is that something that you see in the cannabis sector? How do you think the burn rate is going to change over time? Well, the most obvious thing is that it's going to become cheaper for existing services. So as an example, if I am paying a cannabis premium for my office space because the landlord knows that cannabis-related companies have a difficult time finding office space, I may have had to have char- pay a, a higher per square fee for my office. 
So if I have a huge office because I'm in a, I'm a larger company, guess what? I can now have any office out there and I can compete just like any other business. So I'm going to reduce my expenses. So immediately I expect the spend for normal day-to-day business costs to decrease. And that's going to kind of send a wave through the entire industry. And it's also going to uh, impact the pace at which the industry itself has become becomes mainstream. Right now, there's a lot of people that say, if I'm an accountant and I want to work in the industry, I'm still a little like, mm, I don't want to c- come into the industry. Like I hear people losing their bank accounts and I hear people this and, and there's still that hesitation. So once that goes away, we're going to see a lot more people coming into the industry, just wanting to work in the industry. We're going to see a lot more accountants, a lot more service providers, a lot more of the professional staff coming into the industry. Right now, cannabis companies are still having a hard time hiring people because not only are they competing in a tight labor market, but they're also having to compete with the normalization and mainstreaming of the cannabis industry. So there's kind of that little hump you got to get people over to come join the industry. Then on top of that, you typically have to pay a premium for things. So I think that that's going to be the major, major change or the feeling. It's going to be an impact that companies feel, I should say. And that will be dramatic and fast. Yes. So a lot of changes recently, and I'm sure a lot more to happen in the very near future. So to touch on that, is there any particular learning or belief or habit that you've picked up over your years in the cannabis industry and that you would bring forward to improve your life and your um, your work going forward? Yes. I got to tell you that just my personal perspective on this has been that I have learned a tremendous amount from the industry. Just as an entrepreneur myself, the very first thing that I learned was res- resiliency. The sense that the entire world was after you, that you were not competing just with the market, but with the entire world. The entire world was is just constantly trying to crush your business. And resiliency is, I think, a cultural norm in the industry. So I have really learned that. And that has become part of my DNA and as part of our company here at Adnant, that when we face obstacles, we're just not going to be, oh, okay, well, I guess we can't do that. The norm is, well, let's try to figure this out. Let's continue to pound the wall until we dismantle it or figure a way to get over it. That's the very first thing. The other thing is, is that the amazing amount of entrepreneurs in the industry that I've had the opportunity to work with a lot of amazing people and amazing entrepreneurs that constantly learning, constantly seeing how they're doing things and constantly proud of how they adapt and how they keep a, such of a um, unrelenting optimism towards the industry and things improving, things getting better and, and sort of the, the normalization of the industry impacting how they do business. And it's really been a re- refreshing sense to how you do business. And I think that the other thing that goes along with that is just being fearless as a cultural trait within business, within yourself, just really seeing the opportunity jumping in and going for it and seeing that again and again among the different companies that we work with has just also been refreshing and frankly, just um, something that I admire from a a lot of uh, these entrepreneurs in the industry. 
you know, that's amazing that that resilience that you've learned and um, that unrelenting optimism. I love that concept. And then as well, that fearlessness taking it forward. It sounds like an amazing journey and I'm sure an amazing journey that you'll continue to go on and, and definitely amazing life skills and experience to go through that I'm sure will um, add great value uh, going forward to everybody involved. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much, Sebastian. It was, it was great talking to you. And um, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast and uh, hopefully catch up with you soon. Thank you very much. It was fun. Thanks for tuning in to this week's Spend Culture Stories podcast, sponsored by Procurify. If you'd like to learn more about your spend culture, take our quiz at spendculture.com.